Well, if uh, you're new with us today, we're actually taking a break uh, through our study of 1 Samuel, where we've been looking at the life of King Saul, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 27 today. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Psalm 27. And as you're turning, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here, D- doing what your people have always done, which is hearing from you. Empowered by the Spirit through your word. And Lord, we confess today that the primary way you communicate to us is your word. Your word itself claims to be breathed out by you, coming from inside of you. And we know that inside of you is nothing that is false or erroneous or untrue. So we know that your word is inerrant. We also know that it's living and it's active. It's alive, even speaking to us today. And so, Spirit, we just invite you to come, working in tandem with your word today, to to do that work that really only you can do, of giving us eyes to see the truth of the gospel, giving us faith where we lack, convicting us where we need conviction, encouraging us where we need encouragement. So, Spirit, come and do a good work as we look at your word. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, fear and anxiety can easily control us, can't it? You see, we, when we live in fear, we're actually controlled by the thing that we fear the most. Many of us uh, struggle with anxiety over other people's opinions. It's a form of fear of man, just, just worrying about how other people are judging us. There's an old fable that illustrates the, the fear of man, specifically fearing other people's judgments and how it controls us. Have you ever heard of the tale of the man, the boy, and the donkey? It goes like this. There's a man, a boy, and a donkey walking along the way. And, and uh, uh, as they're walking down the road, an old farmer walks by and, and kind of mocks them, saying, listen, why would you have a donkey if, if nobody's riding the donkey? And so the man takes the boy and puts him on the donkey, and they walk a little further. And then an old lady comes by, and, and she says, why would you have a, have a young boy with strong legs, fresh legs? Why would he be the one uh, riding on the donkey? So the man takes the boy off the donkey, and he gets on the donkey. Then one of his friends walks by and says, Man, why, why are you so lazy riding on the donkey when, when you have a boy there that could be riding on the donkey? So then he gets off the donkey. Listen, that, that's what it looks like living uh, according to the fear of man, living according to other people's opinions. You're just tossed to and fro, and it's a trap, right? Fear of man is a trap. Whatever you fear is actually going to be the thing that controls you. If you struggle with the fear of men, then you're going to be controlled by other people's opinions. However, everybody struggles at some point in their life with fear. And we all, uh, at different points in our lives, we struggle with different levels of anxiety. And what causes you to fear and what causes you to be anxious today? Psalm 27 is really helpful and important because it teaches us how to face those fears like all the, the great psalms, there's nuance to this passage. There's, there's nuance that teaches us about the nature of faith and the nature of fear. The, the psalmist is going to highlight that, that circumstances can cause us to fear. There are fearful things out there. There are things that you should be fearful of. We, we as Christians should be realist about the brokenness of the world. But, but, but also, he, he's going to talk about how ultimately fear is a condition of the heart. 
Therefore, your perceptions of what you fear is what really matters. What do you think is going on in that moment? How do you, how do you respond to that fear? But, but Psalm 27, it's also important because the psalmist is going to struggle with fear, but, but not in kind of a, a clean way, but rather what I think is kind of a, a messy way. In other words, he's going to start out maybe on a high, if you will. He's going to start out with this really inspiring faith of like how you're really supposed to respond to fear in this really glorious way. But then things are going to turn. He's going to become weak in his faith. He's going to be overcome by his fears. But ultimately, we're going to see that he's going to have peace in all circumstances as he waits on the Lord. The psalmist is going to teach us to trust the Lord. But when your faith is weak, he's then going to teach us to keep clinging to the Lord. But ultimately, no matter what fear you face, he's going to call you to wait on the Lord. Again, what's your greatest fear? The first thing I think we're supposed to see is to trust in the Lord. Look, let's look at the first six verses, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Let's camp out on that first verse for a moment. The psalmist begins with this theme of trust. We're going to see that he's facing some serious adversaries. But starting here in the very first verse, his focus really isn't on the adversaries. His mind and his heart, they're not focused on his circumstances, these things around him that he can't control. They're, they're focused on trusting the Lord. In other words, his perception of all this, the, the lens that he's filtering his struggle with, is according to the Lord, according to who God is. So he trusted God in the face of his difficult circumstances and in the face of really an uncertain future. But why does he do that? He gives us a few reasons why. First, he was not overcome by fear because, as he said, is the Lord is my light. I want you to see two things here. First off, he, he calls him the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is this, uh, this personal covenant name of God. The, the, and it speaks to how God relates to his people. And first, it's, it's personal. It's about this is the God of Israel. This is the personal God of Israel. This is the one that you can know. He, he's, a, he's a person. He, he relates to his elect people. This is the God of Israel. But also, we know about that God that he's a covenant-making God. He makes all these promises to his people. And in fact, he sets these boundaries around his people. And that's based upon these promises that he makes. And so when he calls him the Lord... He's saying that, listen, this is my Lord. And, and even look at the repetition of my in that first verse. This is, a, this is a God that he has a personal relationship with. And that personal relationship is backed by all these covenant promises that he has. So he's, he refuses to be paralyzed and controlled by anxiety and fear based upon his personal relationship with his promise-keeping God. But, but then he ascribes three things to this, this personal God. The first one is that he is my light. So light is this idea that it's this source of personal enlightenment. So he has this relationship with God to where uh, he has this, this bright, hopeful future because God is his light. No, no matter how dark other things might get in his life, he can be hopeful. He doesn't have to be overcome by fear because God is his light. But also as his light, God is, is shining his light into anything that is dark. And so anything that is uncertain in his life, he can turn to God as his guide. 
He can move forward into the dark because God is his light. He, he's going to guide all of his steps. Now, now listen, the, God is our guide. That's less mystical and more biblical. Really what he's getting at is, listen, God, he's confessing that, God, you have given me your word. You have given me your light, and so I know the ways that I can go. I don't have to, you know, do all these seances and all these weird things like not knowing which way to turn because God has given me his word. He's given me the light. I know which way to go. So he didn't have to live his life filled with anxieties because he's trusting in God as his light. The second thing I want you to see is not only is he, he says he's my light, he said he's my salvation. He doesn't have to be overcome by fear because God is his salvation. Salvation is all about deliverance. It's, it's all about taking someone out of something that is bad and putting them into something good. And, and there's all sorts of things that can be our, our deliverers. Maybe, maybe there's some medicine that you take that helps you overcome some sort of a disease. In that sense, it's your salvation. It's your deliverer. Here in the, you know, this uh, time in Israel, they, these were, they, they had attacking armies. And if there was another army that came along that was stronger, well, that army was a deliverer to, to, to the people. But with his head, he understood that God is ultimately his deliverer. Ultimately, above any other types of deliverances, God is the one that can ultimately move him from what is bad and unsafe and take him to safety and welfare. He has a good future because God is his deliverer. Again, he doesn't have to live a life filled with anxieties because he is trusting God as his salvation. But there's one more that he notes in this first verse. He says that God is my stronghold. That's a great word, isn't it? God is his stronghold, meaning uh, that God is his place of strength like a fortress. You see, God is this place that he can run to. When, when he's under attack, when, he, when he's faced with these overwhelming attackers, he can run to something that is stronger than any strength that, that, that is found in this world. He has something that is stronger. Do you remember the old Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. That's who God is to you. He's a stronghold. He's a fortress that is stronger than any other strength, any other adversary that you can face. Again, he didn't have to live his life filled with anxieties if he was trusting God as his stronghold. Therefore, he concluded that no one and nothing should cause him fear. No matter his circumstances, he didn't have to live according to the fear of man. No matter what was going on around him, he didn't have to be overcome by anxiety. Now, now listen, I, I want to pause here for a second and just note that, that this, note the, the lack of superficiality in his faith. There's not a shallowness to his faith. Do you see that? Like, like listen, we're all surrounded by these people who say that they're Christians, but, but then there's no evidence of, of that in their life. And you see it specifically when they're overcome by fear. That they're not filtering their fears. They're not filtering their, their uncertain future based upon what they know about God and His covenant promises. This is one of the main ways we apply the gospel. And listen, if you're kind of living maybe a shallow or hypocritical faith, I, I just want to tell you that, that God has something better for you. The, the, the psalmist highlights something better. Something better than saying, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, and then living however you want. Or, yeah, 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 I go to church, but then never thinking about it again. Never applying God's word to the struggles of your life. Friend, God cares for you. His ways are better. 
He can deliver you from anything. He's stronger than any attacker and he wants to protect you. Do you believe those truths? Do you really believe them in the face of the brokenness of the world? Again, what's your, what's your greatest fear that you're facing right now? In the face of that fear, how does God need to be your light and your salvation and your stronghold? You see, trusting him is how you faithfully navigate any attack. You trust him to be your light and your salvation and your stronghold. Trust the Lord. It means that we are not to be afraid. Look at verses 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The, the psalmist's focus, it kind of turns from the Lord now to his adversaries. But as he looks at his adversaries, he, he runs it through this, this gospel lens. And what he sees is a really beautiful paradox. You see, even though they desire to harm him, they're going to be the ones who are harmed. E- even though they surround him, he doesn't have to be fearful, but he can be confident. And no matter what they throw at him, he can trust the Lord no matter what they throw at him. No matter what circumstances come his way, he doesn't have to be fearful. He can be confident. Now, l- let me pause and just make, I think, a very important point as we read this. Christians are supposed to be realist, okay? The world is broken. There are real threats out there. There are things that can harm you and even, even kill you. That's what he's facing. He's, he's facing a real threat. He's facing an army that has the potential to kill him. The threat is real. So, so this isn't like, you know, pie-in-the-sky optimism of what he's talking about here. He, he is a realist. However, we don't have to cower in fear. Even though there's real dangers out there, we, we don't have to be overcome by our anxieties. We can confidently face those fears and problems. Why? Because we have light and salvation and a stronghold. God's people have always won in the end. Amen? That, that, that's our covenant promise that we have of God. God's people have also had something that no one can take away from us. So look at verses 4 and 5. One thing I have, I ask of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. No matter what came, the psalmist sought salvation in the Lord. The the one thing, notice, that he didn't ask for here was a change of circumstances. Do you notice that? Verse 4 doesn't say, okay, change my circumstances. Please take these adversaries away. His focus is on the Lord. He, In fact, the thing that he asked for here is more of Yahweh. He asked to dwell with Yahweh, to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. That, that was greater than, than any adversary that he faced. You see, he would rather have his relationship with God than ideal circumstances. Do you see that? He would rather have God than ideal circumstances. You see, everything could be falling apart, but if he could be in the presence of God, enjoying his magnificence, then he could be happy. In other words, he could be on his deathbed, and if he had the Lord, he had enough. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? You see, is, is, the, is his glory, is it glorious to you? Is God enough for you? 
Or do you have to have all your circumstances exactly how you want them in order to be happy? Friend, if that's how you're living your life, you're never going to be happy, okay? If you have to have everything squared away, friend, it's a failed experiment. Is, is God's presence your joy? Or is having everyone like you? Or having perfect health? Or having enough money? Or, 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 having, all your, or, or having all your struggles taken care of? Are all those greater joys for you than God Himself? Is all that being squared away... Can you be happy only then, or can you be happy in the face of all that? What's more beautiful and soul-filling to you than God himself? Let me warn you, if you find something more beautiful than the Lord, then it's always going to let you down. It's never going to ultimately satisfy you, and you're going to be held bondage into the fear of that thing that you want more than the Lord. Seek the Lord, dwell in his presence, gaze upon his beauty. That's the pathway to joy. That's the pathway to happiness and soul satisfaction, even if an army is surrounding you. Verse 26, or verse 6 says, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is the high mark of the passage. This is the climax of his thinking and living. In the face of an uncertain future, surrounded by adversaries, the psalmist is someone who believed God was his light, his salvation, his stronghold. He, he was someone who ultimately sought the Lord for hope and happiness. And notably, he, did, he doesn't ultimately seek a change of circumstances. He ultimately seeks the Lord. What does that way of living produce? If you live that way, what's the fruit of that? Well, notice, first he said that his head is held high. He's confident and he's hopeful, even as an army is invading him. He's he's above the muck of the world. He's not being sucked in by all the brokenness of the world. But in addition to his head, the essence of his being is desiring to be in the presence of God, his truest self. He just wanted to be in the tent of the Lord. But also it moves from his head and his essence to his heart. His heart is filled with joy. His his emotions were happy. Even though all his circumstances were not ideal, his emotions were happy. And then where does he land? He lands with his voice. In the face of all that, he's able to sing. What spills out of him is a praise to God. Friends, that's how I want to go through life. Isn't that inspiring to you? Isn't that the way you want to live your lives? I'm going to put my cards on the table. I find these first six verses very inspiring. This is how I want to live my life. I don't want to be crushed by the difficulties of the world. Like, I don't want to live my life like thematically that the theme of my life is that I was an anxious and fearful person, just being controlled by all my fears. I don't want an evading army that caused me to curl up in fear. The psalmist models what I think is a beautiful, hopeful confident, inspiring way to live life. And it's all built upon trusting the Lord, on who He is and the promises that He has made to us. Again, what's your greatest fear today? How are you thinking about that fear in light of the fact that God is your salvation and your light and your stronghold? How do you need to go into His presence in the face of that fear? Maybe like the man, the boy, man of the boy and, and the donkey. There, there's a, a love of other people's opinions that you need to turn from. Trust in the Lord no matter your circumstances. Well, starting in verse 7, there's about to be a pretty dramatic change. This is a call to cling to the Lord. Look at 7 to 10 with me. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. 
Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but but the Lord will take me in. This is a pretty dramatic change, kind of in, in tone and in energy, isn't it? That like this is this is a, a real shift from the first six verses. Now, now it's such a dramatic shift that, that a lot of scholars think that that maybe there's a different author going on here. Like maybe these verses weren't even supposed to be in this psalm. Maybe some sort of mistake was made here. Now, I think when, when guys try to make that case, I, I think they're getting into weird speculative stuff, okay? And, and just to give some encouragement to you, the, the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. It's this doctrine that says, listen, the, the Bible that you hold in your hands, the, those words are divinely inspired by God. And I actually think that that extends to the editing process that went through every book of the Bible. So you might think gospel. It's like th- there were certain things that were put in and certain things that were left out and there was an order to it, to the message of it. Th- that was all divinely inspired. So, so even if this had a different source or maybe a, a different author, it was edited in a way in order to make a point, okay? Th- this is supposed to be in this psalm because it's supposed to make a very important point that we're supposed to see. You see, trusting the Lord in the face of fears and anxieties, it it can be marked by these seasons that are inspiring, where where you have this confident, calm faith in the face of anxieties, like verses 1 to 6. But also, it can be seasons of desperate, tenuous, weak faith, like we're going to see in verses 7 to 12. In other words, Trust in the face of fears and anxieties. It's not this straight line of ever-increasing, like, perfecting faith, okay? Like, it's not like, okay, you got saved, you were born again, and then you have this, like, perfect growing faith the rest of your life, right? That's not my experience. I'm assuming it's not yours. Be encouraged because sometimes trusting God includes these seasons of being scared and desperate. Sometimes faithfulness is this anguish, just clinging trust to the Lord. Verses 7 and 10, it reminds us uh, what to do when our faith is weak. You see, it's really not about the quality of your faith. It's really about the object of your faith. There's going to be seasons in your life where you have weak faith. But, but be encouraged because it's not about the quality of your faith and mustering up greater quality of faith. It's really about the object of the faith. Are you trusting in the right person? In my early college years, I was filled with a lot of fears and anxieties. I didn't know what I wanted to do. People would always ask me, what are you going to do? I, had, I really honestly had no idea. I tried a couple of things. I failed at many of them. I felt very lost. I felt very uncertain. God was also disciplining me for not trusting him. And that discipline was hard, but it was good because it was drawing me back to faithfulness. But when I look back at those years, my faith was weak, okay? It, it, it was weak, it was not strong, it was desperate, and it was anguished. But God in His grace was preserving my faith. And really what He was preserving was faith in the right thing, which was faith in Him. In those years, I memorized um, John fourteen twenty seven: Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world uh, gives to you. Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. There were nights that I, I, I couldn't go to sleep. I was overcome by fear, and I would just recite that verse over and over and over. I, I would recite it until I really believed it. 
I, I, I would recite it until it moved from my head down to my heart, until I really experienced that peace, and then I would go to sleep. I, I began to cling to the right thing. I cling to Him. Friends, sometimes faithfulness is desperate cries, like verse 7. Like sometimes faithfulness is begging for mercy and answers, like we see in verse 7. Sometimes faithfulness is this humble confession like we see in verse 8. Sometimes faithfulness is clinging to the promise and begging God for those promises like we see in verse 9. And sometimes faithfulness is confessing truth that we're struggling to believe in verse 10. Do you remember the, the father in Mark 9? He comes begging Jesus to heal his son. He makes a wonderful statement. I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes that's our faith. Clinging faith is a plea for God not to forsake or abandon us. Sometimes that's all we can muster. But hear the good news, Deuteronomy 30, 31, verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Amen? 11 and 12 say, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. 7 to 10 is this desperate turn. He's sliding down. He has weak faith. He had strong faith. Now he has weak faith. But 11 and 12, it's almost as if he's coming out of that dark night of the soul. He recognizes that he needs a more confident faith. And so he asked God for a couple of things. First, he asked for teaching, and then he asked for victory. You see, when, when you're overwhelmed by your fears and anxieties, pray for greater understanding in that moment. But believe that he's with you, believe that he's working good, and then ask him to teach you, uh, to ask him to teach you what you need to learn from that fear or from that experience. You see, ask him to, to change you and take you down a better path than, than what is resulting from this anxiety. Pray for greater understanding. But, but also, when you're overwhelmed by fears and anxieties, pray for better circumstances. Like, it's okay to ask God to heal you. It's okay uh, to ask God to defeat that attacking army. It's okay to ask God to provide you for a new job or to help you pass that exam. Now, you've got to be careful in those moments because you, you, you have to pray for those things, humbly accepting his good sovereignty. Because sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. However, feel the freedom to ask for better circumstances. That, that's not unspiritual. That's not unfaithful. Again, I, I love the authentic turn of, of 7 to 12 because sometimes our, our faith is weak. Sometimes trusting the Lord is just this desperate claim. Sometimes we're just overcome by fear. And, and we need to remember 1 Peter 5, 7, to genuinely cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. No matter the fear, cling tightly to the Lord. But finally, He calls us to wait for the Lord. Look, for, look at 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Through the ups and downs of this passage, the, uh, he, he ultimately lands with this resolve. He's up in verses 1 to 6, and then he's down in the next verses, but in the end he resolves to wait for the Lord. Waiting is an aspect of trusting the Lord. 
But, but, but it's also connected to the reality of unchanging, difficult circumstances. <laughs> There's no indication that the, that the army just went away. There's no indication that his circumstances got better. He was still in a season of waiting. Now, now we need to be very clear. The, the great virtue of the Bible is faith, right? That's the great virtue of the Bible. Faith or trust, it's all about believing that something is true, even though you can't see it with your physical eyes. And, and many times the things that you're supposed to believe or trust are true, even though you can't see them with your physical eyes, they're, they're things in the future. But like some of us, you know, we, we've experienced many blessings of the covenant promises of God here right now in the present. But let's be honest, most of the things that we hope in, they're in the future, right? Like so here in the present, the here and now, we're waiting for certain things. Like that's a mark of our spirituality is that we're waiting. If you need to know something to be true and right, uh, like, like if, you need, if you need to have all your answers, you know, uh, all the questions, uh, all your answers uh, to your questions answered, if you need all that squared away before you can follow God, friend, you fundamentally misunderstand faith. You fundamentally misunderstand the gospel and what God is doing. Like he's going to call you to wait and he's going to call you to trust him. You see, God intentionally does not answer all of our questions. I've got a long list of questions that I don't know the answers to. Okay, God intentionally does that. He also intentionally doesn't fix all of our problems. Okay, the rest of our lives, we're not going to experience ideal circumstances. There's always going to be things that we're going to worry about. There's always going to be things about the future that we're not sure of. And he's going to call us to wait on him. As we've seen, it's, uh, it's good uh, to pray to ask God to change your circumstances. But again, he, he might say no. He might respond with wait. But at the end of the day, trusting in God is waiting on him for salvation. You see, there's going to be a point, like he says in verse 13, where the goodness of the, where you're going to experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. However, you're going to have to wait for it. We're waiting right now. Therefore, in the present, in the face of those fears, he says in verse 14, to be strong and let your heart take courage. Do you remember when God's people were at the, at the banks of the Jordan, about to go into the promised land? The promised land. It was promised to them, okay? But there's twists and turns of that, of that promise that they don't know about. Maybe they're going to die in that fight. Maybe their children are going to die in that fight. They, they, they don't know where this is going to go. No doubt they were filled with fear, right? And what's the great admonition of the Lord right on the banks of the Jordan? What, what does he tell Joshua? Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give. Be strong and courageous. I, I don't know the fear that is paralyzing you or controlling you. However, based upon God being our light and our salvation and our stronghold, take heart. Be of good courage, lifting up your head. Take joy in dwelling with God. Gaze upon His beauty. Take courage because He is not going to leave you or forsake you. You will get to the promised land, verse 13. You don't know the twists and turns before you get there, but He's going to be with you and for you in all of it. Friends, this is why Jesus came and died, right? This is why He came and died, for these fears. Jesus is our light. 
You want to talk about God being your light and your salvation and your stronghold. You're quickly talking about Jesus, right? Uh, John 1, 4 and 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And what? The darkness has not overcome it. You see, if you trust in Jesus, Jesus will be your light and your salvation and your stronghold. In other words, there's no darkness that can ultimately overcome the light of Jesus. Amen? But like, like, hear me, there's no bondage that, that can ultimately block Jesus' salvation, right? You see, there's no power that can ultimately tear down Jesus as your stronghold. He's stronger than anything out there. He came to free you from the fears of this world. Do you trust Him? Edward spent much of his life controlled by fears. As a child, he feared someone hurting him. As a teenager, he was anxious about people liking him. As a young man, he worried about finding his place in the world and, and making his life matter. When he got married, he feared not being a good husband. When he became a father, he struggled with anxiety about being a good father. He was prone to worry about money and, and health and the future. But, but here's what he concluded. He, he said that, the last 20 years of my life have been spent, in part, shortening the lag time between the, appear the appearance of anxiety and the onset of prayer. That gap has gone from two days down to one, then down to an hour or two. And occasionally, prayer uh, comes even before my anxiety is full-blown. What then happens? I, I marvel at the power of God that equips me to do what is so counterintuitive. Isn't that a glorious faith? What a glorious way to, to handle our fears and anxieties, to trust in the Lord. You see, he faced his fears. He, he learned to trust the Lord no matter the circumstances. His circumstances were never ideal. They, they were never exactly how he wanted them. At, at times, his anxiety was more desperate than at other times. Sometimes his faith was weak, but he kept focusing in the right place. The object of his faith was always Jesus. Jesus was always his solutions. So even though he knew his circumstances were never going to be perfect, he found joy in waiting on the Lord. Again, I don't know what's controlling you or, or paralyzing you today, but, but take heart. Take heart in, in trusting that he can be your light and your salvation and your stronghold. No, no matter the adversary that you fear, lift up your head. Like, like, lift up your head and dwell in His presence. Gaze upon His glory. In other words, no, no matter the circumstances of your life, and, and even no matter the conditions of your heart, trust in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank You for Psalm 27 and just getting to examine and, and diagnose someone who had imperfect faith. All of us have imperfect faith. Lord, may you preserve us, especially when our faith is weak, to gaze upon you, to make you the, the object of our trust and our hope. Not in ourselves, especially not in, in ideal circumstances. We know we're never going to have that. And so, Lord, in the face of, an, of uncertain futures, in the face of real threats, may we trust you. Trust you even when our circumstances are not ideal, even when our hearts are maybe not in the right place. May we just cling to you and wait for you. It's in Jesus' name. We'll